Hello, and welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm ready. And this week we're talking about In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's 2000 film starring Tony Leung and Maggie Chung. Ready? how you doing this week? I'm doing okay. Tom, how are you? Uh, same old shit here. Uh, I actually got <laughs> offered a in-office job this week. It was only for like a three to six month stint, but I very gladly turned that down. And the guy who offered me a job was like, I don't blame you. I don't want to go back to offices either. So that was kind of like the highlight of the week, I guess. I ended up talking to one of my former students earlier today, and we also talked about going back to work or like in the in an office versus staying at home and staying at home is nice but then you feel very isolated as well so it's it's a trade-off um and i know which way i'm willing to trade is staying at home and sleeping until my first meeting uh versus having to go to an office and commute for anywhere from 30 to an hour 30 minutes a day so yeah that's really kind of the big thing with this offer too is i think it was eight dollars more an hour but it would have mm-hmm. been like a similar commute. It um, it says on on maps that it's only half hour, but I know just from personal experience, it never is that quickly to this part of the to this particular Denver suburb. Mm-hmm. And just doing the math, where it's like, yeah, I'd get more money in a day, but also it would be eight hours working, and then probably like an hour and a half to two hours driving. So like that's ten hours in total. So I feel like between the time lost and the added expenses of actually having to buy gas more than once every two months for me, that it probably would not yeah. be worth it. Plus driving, probably, you not. know, commuting during Denver winters. I don't want to do that. Fuck that. I'd rather just stay in my sweatpants and make the money that I'm making now. I can't believe anyone would make you uh, commute during a Denver winter. Uh, I thought everything just shut down, frankly. It depends. There are degrees of intensity here but uh if it's just like a normal snowfall i think they would expect you to go but Boo. there's still a lot of people here who are like i have a big truck so that means i can still drive like a jackass and you inevitably see them like skidding off the road and ending up in ditches on the side so it's kind of like mm, they're out there i don't really want to deal with that i'm fine oh what a money. shame <laughs> what a terrible shame um, not to become sports ball podcast 101, but man, basketball, huh? <sighs> I don't think I want to talk about it. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, I will just mention if you didn't see it uh, yesterday, the Golden State played the Lakers, and Golden State, it was two overtimes, and then they lost. <laughs> Golden State lost. So that was not really fantastic for my, uh, you know, whatever. I did tell Tom that I was thinking about uh, abandoning Golden State and jumping onto the bandwagon of just the worst teams in the league. So like the Pistons and the Spurs and, you know, at least then you know what you're getting uh, rather than blindly trying to hold out hope. But here we are. I did like that link you sent me about uh, Detroit fans suggesting the players commit violent felonies on the court in order to improve their <laughs> their uh, their winning strategy. If I ever teach law, like that'll be that'll be one of the hypos. If I ever teach torts or <laughs> it uh, did read like that. Yeah. One of one of the bullshit classes I took in law school was a sports law class, and this definitely was <laughs> read like a hypothetical for one of the exams. Where it's like if a player were to wear brass knuckles and punch the opponent in the back of the head, would that be considered uh like 
within the the realm of the rules of the sport or does it transcend into a criminal activity well give it six months and i'm sure draymond green will have done it so i guess we'll find out then <laughs> even though we've lost the love of the game i don't know about you but i'm still in the mood for love Beautiful segue into our discussion about this week's movie, In the Mood for Love. Uh, it's a 2000 film by uh, Wong Kar Wai, set in the 1960s uh, in Hong Kong, and it sees Mrs. Chan, Maggie Cheung, and Mr. Chow, Tony Leung, finding out their spouses are knocking boots. Uh, they enter <laughs> into a platonic relationship as Chan grows, uh, as Chan helps Chow write a martial arts serial. But as they spend more time together, their feelings grow too. So, Tom, Had when are we going to read book? your martial arts serial? Hmm. You know, you you say that in jest. Semi-jest. But I, I have been sitting on an idea for like an action movie script that would be a throwback to the 1980s. But I think it'd probably only be funny to me in a few handful residents of South Florida uh, where a guy would... So you can just someone say Donald with Trump. no fuck that guy. No, it's <laughs> the the loose premise is that a guy has someone smack his public's chicken tender sub out of his hand, and then he goes on a rampage, and it ends up being like against the mob. It's <laughs> against probably the Russian mobs at this base in South Florida. Oh uh, fuck! <laughs> Should we go ahead? Sorry, <laughs> go on with the your description. Oh, that's that's just the idea I've been sitting on for a while. I haven't really put much thought to it, but that's been something I've been considering in the back if I ever kind of need a new idea for a project. So I was going to say it's a very John Wick-like premise, but that reminded me of the one topic I actually had wanted to bring up to you in the intro, and maybe I feel bad for whoever has to edit this, you or me, but uh, maybe we can move this into the intro. But Tom, have you seen the uh, trailer for Monkey Man? Yes, I watched it yesterday. I thought it was going to be a trailer for a horror movie. And then it was, it's Dev Patel, right? It's Dev Patel uh, as the screenwriter, the director, and the star. Yeah, I saw Jordan Peele produce. So I thought it was going to be a horror movie starring Dev Patel. Because I like him. He was, he's was he been pretty solid in everything I've seen him in. And mm -hmm. I feel like he and I have similar hair. So I kind of like look to him for how to style <laughs> my hair. you both. And uh, yeah, it, you're it, that is a John Wickian film if I've ever seen one. It's it's brown people and John Wick. And I was like, you know what? I could I could get into this. I'm less into like the uh, graphic violence, you know, as I get older uh, and mm -hmm. my body starts to give out in various ways. But um, I'll watch it for Dev Patel. He's he's rocking a pretty good mustache in in the trailer as well. So I'm in. I'm in. Tangentially related to the movie we're reviewing this week, I am actually a big fan of Hong Kong action films, especially from like the early '90s. Ironic oh, because Tony Leung gets no action in this in in the Mood for Love. Ooh, that's good. Probably. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> well. There was there is one scene where I wanted to ask your thoughts on I yeah but we'll get we'll get to that so yes <laughs> all right so have had you seen in the mood for love before no I don't I mean so Hong Kong cinema action or otherwise is a huge like blind spot for me in movies I've watched and so I wasn't even like super aware like I knew who 
Wong Kar Wai was and that he was a director and he was like very noted, but I hadn't seen this movie before. Uh, I haven't really seen a ton of Hong Kong cinema outside of like maybe some of like Jackie or, you know, Chinese Hong Kong cinema outside of like maybe Jackie Chan's uh, some mm-hmm. of his his middle stuff before he became like super popular in America. But yeah, I to answer your question, no, I hadn't seen this. Movie. What did you think? I liked it overall. I think there's a few things that I, I didn't love about the movie, but overall it pales in comparison to uh, sort of the things that I did like about it. And uh, my partner had seen it before. And so uh, she dropped some hints on on what the movie was like and, and things like that. But other than one problematic note that I will bring up maybe towards the end of the podcast, uh, I'm really interested in seeing like this loose trilogy of movies that goes along with or that In the Mood for Love is a part of. I, I did like what I saw here. Um, and I will say, uh, not being into that like Hong Kong cinema scene very much, I didn't know Tony Luong very well outside of like him being the real Mandarin in uh, Shang-Chi. But he's a real G, huh? He's like a real like person and actor based on this movie. He's one of my favorite actors. I One of the notes I made to myself was I could watch him longfully staring out a window for hours and be very content. Like it's just something <laughs> about that man is just, uh, I forget where I heard it. If, it. if I read it in a review or in a YouTube video or something, but someone once described him as acting with his eyes. And mm. when you watch, ever since I heard that, I noticed that. And it's so true because his face will mostly be still, but, and it's not like his eyes are darting back and forth. Like he's on, speed or something it's just like you can tell <laughs> that there's just so much going on behind the character like it's the there's just something very compelling about the way he conveys emotions and that's such a strong component of this movie where it's just like so much is unsaid between the, the two main characters because like you said they're they're uh i guess like they're cucks right i mean it's is that safe to say i mean i guess by the deck uh technical definition of the term yeah they're cucks um and there's some uh there's some ambiguity as to whether they like uh get it on i guess to, to put it in the the modern parlance but um yeah and i don't know we talked about it a little bit last week with akiru and i think we'll talk about it next week a little bit as well but like you know there's a sort of like semi-racist trope in america where like it's hard to tell what East Asian people are like doing as actors because, you know, they have the epithetic fold, epicanthic fold. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm. I'm not <laughs> sure. I know what you're referring to, but I don't, I don't know the, the term for it. Uh, I want to make sure that I epicanthic fold. Okay. We can, we could edit that part where I didn't know what I was talking about out. Sure. Um, but, <laughs> and you know, I, I, I go back to like someone like, you know, Tachiro Mafune who we're going to talk about, but, how could you not see how these people are feeling? Like they act, they, you know, it's, it's very clear. And I think, you know, Tony Luong's acting is very different from Toshiro Mifune's, but uh, it just calls to mind, like this weird thing that Americans have to say that, you know, it's hard to tell what Asian people are emoting uh, and uh, watch this damn movie and, and say that with a straight face. I don't think you could. I was going to say, I, I think a lot of people just have a hard time understanding and interpreting emotions regardless of ethnicity but maybe that's no, being, i mean uh, yeah too too kind to some people <laughs> i saw a tweet by like some right-wing nutbag that was like if you want to see a science fiction show that doesn't have all the woke politics and stuff you should watch the expanse 
and I don't know if you watched the expanse or read the books or whatever, uh, but that it, it's all politics. It's all, it's like about like, uh, you know, uh, a fascist regime on Mars and then like a collective on earth and then like a sort of socialist regime in space and like the whole, and like, you know, sort of pansexual stuff going on. Like it's nothing but politics. And it's like anyone who says that just doesn't understand uh, the media they're consuming. And, and yeah, I, I, sadly we're, we're in what I feel like is like a real trough for like people understanding stuff that they, you know, theoretically are watching or fans of or reading. You yeah. mentioned a few episodes ago about media illiteracy and mm. it's absolutely true. I mean, I always think of the fact that Paul Ryan listened to rage against the machine and did not realize that their stances on things were pretty much antithetical to everything he believed in the world. And he was just like, Oh yeah, they're a great band. So it's like, you're, you're not paying attention. Ted Cruz being a fan of almost anything, including the Simpsons is, is mind boggling to me. Oh. Yeah. Right. I will say my partner said world heartthrob, Tony, Tony Leung is how she described him. So, and I will, you know, uh, between Maggie Cheung and Tony Leung, these, this is a, a very attractive pair of leading uh, actors for this film. These are two very beautiful people. Oh yeah, and then you factor in the clothing. Like he's always wearing great tailored suits, and she's wearing yeah. these beautifully vibrant and colorful gowns. Like I guess gowns not, but like you know work attire. It's just like yeah, everything about this movie just looks so good. Like the clothing looks good, the people look good, the lighting looks good. It's just like yeah, lush and beautiful. And then these like romantic scenes in the rain and intimate scenes in restaurants with it has these really neat green colored tea sets it's just like oh my god it's just oh i i can gush over so many aspects of this movie well there's two things I, i'd want to ask you uh just based on that convert or based on that that description I'll, I'll go in one direction but do you have a thing for the 1960s tom because i feel like we keep coming back to this decade <laughs> Oh, Jesus, this is just like last last episode where I realized I had the recurring theme of being launched into space. Uh, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I It's funny you mention that because I, I was toying with the idea this week of purchasing the complete Mad Men series on Blu-ray. That was following mm -hmm. a podcast that discussed whether the final episode of Mad Men kind of... I think this, the show is called Stick the Landing. And they mm -hmm. they discussed the final episodes of kind of major TV shows. And this week they did Mad Men. And so listening to yeah. that, I was like, yeah, maybe I should buy this. I don't know. Maybe I do have some about the 1960s. I never thought of it that way. But you're right. Well, that, like, I think yeah. my last three choices were The Apartment, This, and... Um, the Selenium movie. I've, oh, yeah. Yeah. Eight and a half. Jesus. Yeah. maybe Maybe you're right. I I put a note saying that maybe the 60s were a particularly depressing decade. So that might be why we keep coming back to this well. <laughs> but I, I do, I mean, you know, and I've said it before, and we talked about Mad Men uh, during Eight and a Half and uh, again during uh, uh, The Apartment. Like, uh, the style is so fantastic. And, you know, if I were, like, going out into the world rather than working from home, I, I would, you know, try to dress a little more in that style with the thin ties and the, you know, the very carefully tailored suits and the texture of, you know, even men's clothing, let alone sort of women's clothing and how beautiful that was uh, during the 60s, uh, as we see in this movie very, very distinctly. 
I did have a note that I know Gen Z has swung back around to like bootcut jeans, not bootcut jeans, but like those Jinko style jeans and maybe wider ties and stuff. But I love, I love, I can't, I can't let go of my skinny jeans and skinny ties. And then I was going to suggest that you love secondhand smoke. And this is why we're in the 60s so often. Um, just, and then I, another breathe it in. Yeah. <sighs> ah, that's brisk, baby. <laughs> uh, but another uh, parallel I wanted to bring up was here's another woman trapped in a guy's apartment um, uh, similar to the apartment. This is really proving to be fascinating for my psyche right now. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. This one I, uh, well, I chalked I up more I... to being a coincidence, but uh, it did it did happen again in this film. It It did. I forgot about that. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. We we kind of frame this podcast as how we could improve our own lives from studying these sad men in movies. And I actually am starting to find some weird patterns. I want to be launched into space and I want to be locked <laughs> in an apartment with a woman, I guess, in the 1960s. So, yeah, we just gotta yeah wait all I need is a time. Uh, yeah, I need a time machine and an apartment and no concern for kidnapping. And then I yeah. want to get on the, uh, what was it Apollo 11, uh, Apollo 11 that went to the moon. I mean, that's all in the sixties that uh, just send me back to that decade and I'm good to go, I guess. I mean, I think time traveling would be fun in any case. Cause you could always be like, I tell you this David Bowie, he's going to be something huge, huge. I tell you, I just, it's the dream oh. of, of back to the future where you take that future information and you go back into the past and, and live like a king and they're smarter than everyone else. It's beautiful. But um, I did have a note. Uh, it isn't even a full sentence, but the color, the pattern, the lighting in that 1960s right next to it. And as you, as you said, like the texture of this movie is, is, is beautiful and deep and just from a visual perspective. And I really appreciated that. And I really liked that that eye like it it i you know you could watch this movie on mute and and really get a lot out of it yeah i was trying to develop a theory a couple of years ago about if i were to ever make a film i feel like you'd have to be able to understand what's going on if if like the tv was mute and you could only see it you'd be able to understand enough from what you're seeing to understand the plot yeah be able to understand it if you could only hear it but couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's it. I think I feel like there was a third component, but I can't remember what it was now. I I mean I just think about things like Benny Hill, where you could you know put it on mute and really just basically understand everything that's going on. Versus like I don't know like a radio drama where everything is is spoken dial or spoken, and then maybe you have a narrator that isn't you know doing dialogue per se, but describing things and how that works in your mind's eye and. I'm a huge fan of the like early 80s BBC Lord of the Rings radio drama and it's like 12 hours so it's like pretty close to the you know watching all three extended edition movies and partially you know that's because I was a Lord of the Rings fan way before um the movies came out and the uh, the radio drama hues closer to the books than it does to the, the, the than the movies do but it lets you like imagine things as well and you kind of creating things on your own and so I know there's been several instances recently of books that I want to read having being made into either movies or TV shows and then me rushing to read the book before the TV show or the movie comes out so that, you know, my my mental image of it isn't sort of, you know, well, influenced or or 
at least I get a first crack at the the mental image of it before the book or the movie or the movie or the uh, TV show kind of takes over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always like to get in something kind of uh, untainted, kind of have my own impression. And then I think I've, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better about like separating what I expect it to be from what actually somebody else produces and not necessarily knocking them for it, not looking like the way I want it to. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, yeah, that's all that comes with age, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like I, I, there have been book to movie. There's been a few book to movie translations where I think maybe, well, the movie has been better than the book. I think, I mean, just to throw it out there and I think it's probably on our list, but the version suicides is, is one of them where I would, I would put the, the movie up there. Um, and people, different people's interpretations. I just think with Lord of the Rings, he didn't, Peter Jackson didn't completely understand the book or didn't care to understand the book, if it makes sense. Anyway, we're talking about In the Mood for Love. <laughs> I do have a note saying, the clothes, Jerry, the clothes, just so that we have that in for talking about how beautiful the the costumes are in this movie. And, you know, it, it to be clear, uh, again, I, we said it at the top of the podcast, but it, it, the film was made in, 2000, in the year 2000, and both Maggie Cheung and Tony Leung are little too young uh, to experience that decade in Hong Kong themselves. And I think Maggie Cheung also grew up in the UK partially. So for them, it was like a real period piece. And they really had to understand, like I, it, from what I read, you know, on Wikipedia, especially like Wong Kar Wai had to really coach them in understanding like why their characters were acting the way they were acting through this movie. Yeah. And that's, I feel like that's such an important aspect of this film because so much of it's just like, oh, you're these two people who have fallen in love. Just get a divorce because your spouses are cheating on you and you can go get together and go live your own life somewhere else. Yeah. And it's easy to think that now, but I think the social implications at the time prevented them from doing what they wanted to do. And there is one scene in the movie where to give context for people who haven't seen it, like both characters rent out a room within the apartment owned by an older hong kong couple and they in the, these two apartments are next to each other so i guess they're like subletting within an apartment where the landlord is also actively living it's kind of like a very cramped situation which is a very important aspect of the film is just like the lack of privacy and always kind mm -hmm. of being around all these people that are up in your business my big note for this movie is just like that this movie is just it's like the perfect presentation of frustration because like the characters so obviously by the end want to be together and they just can't like whether it's like social mores or like this feeling of obligation to these spouses that obviously don't give a shit about them and what i love about the movie i is that i feel like it creates that same tension and that feeling of frustration within you as you watch it that's almost on par with the same frustration that the two leads are feeling and i feel like anytime a movie can like accurately recreate those feelings within the audience to the point where you are almost like feeling exactly what the characters are feeling i feel like that's such a rare and special experience and i feel like this movie does that so well and that's why i try to like watch it every couple of years because it's just kind of like I don't know. It's like emotions through proxy, I guess. It's for someone like me who's kind of like worries are emotionally dead inside sometimes and to kind of watch something like this and still kind of feel something. I feel like it's a it's a nice reminder that I'm not as stunted as I worry I am. 
Yeah, and I would say like it's a slow burning film. It's about an hour and a half and it feels longer, but I think a lot of that is because you do get frustrated on behalf of these two people. And again, like this the film itself is a 2000 uh year 2000 film. It's looking back on the 1960s. So I do think you're supposed to be frustrated with these people and uh hoping that they get together and uh you know, obviously in the end it doesn't happen. But I, I, I think that's the feeling that the filmmaker wants you to feel. Um, and ultimately, isn't that the, the, the point of cinema is to make you feel something outside of your experience or to, you know, kind of bring you back to an experience that you've had or, or something like that. And so it is, I don't know, it, it, in that sense, it was sort of a tough watch as well, because, you know, it becomes like before the end of the movie, it becomes like pretty clear that they're not going to get together and then the movie kind of baits you into thinking that it might happen a couple of times at the end and it still doesn't happen. And you have to like, kind of be okay with the fact that, you know, people's lives don't wrap up neatly in a way that, you know, they live happily ever after. And I sort of made a joke to myself that, you know, the American remake of this would have them like, you know, they find each other on a beach in Hawaii and then they, they get married and they, you know, uh, live happily ever after. And maybe there's a little more to say on that as we, we get into further into the podcast. But that seems to me like the the kind of schmaltzy American remake that, you know, the rest of the world kind of accuses America of making, or, you know, accuses American filmmaking of being that way, of taking this like, ultimately sad, and, you know, even a little bit painful movie and and making it like a cheesy, happy ending kind of thing, which you know, I don't know. I'm watching a lot of The Office again and uh, not completely untrue for sure. Well, maybe you should just get into it rather than like hinting at it because it is something okay. coincidentally that we, we've we already covered for this this podcast. But yeah. Sofia Coppola we- has been very open that Lost in Translation was highly in- inspired by this movie. Yeah. And I mean, you could almost look at it as an American remake. It seems very similar I do, uh, I mean, I would maybe weigh the little, the levels of platonicness in in the relationship in Lost in Translation versus the one in in The Mood for Love. But I also, so there's something, I, I read something on TV Tropes that really struck me um, and that I didn't pick up on because I don't speak any Chinese, but language isolation is a big part of this movie that I could not understand, but Basically, I think Tony Luong's character and Maddie, Maggie Cheung's character are in Hong Kong, but they're from Shanghai. And so they speak a different dialect of Chinese uh, amongst themselves. And so it goes back and forth uh, when they're talking to the, the landlady versus like when they're talking to each other and they're sort of isolated. And so that's sort of the same thing that happens in Lost in Translation, where Scarlett Johansson's character and Bill Murray's character are in Japan and neither of them speak Japanese. And the only like other than like, you know, the the um, jazz singer and the um, Scarlett Johansson's boyfriend or husband, they're the only people they can really speak English to because they're sort of like in this hotel. And it's the same sort of like language isolation going on in this movie. Um, and so they begin to like rely on each other, especially like similar to Lost in Translation, their like partner or partners are not there. Yeah, it and that's a really interesting aspect of this movie because in Lost in Translation, you well, you never see Bill Murray's wife, 
but you see Scarlett yeah. Johansson's husband a lot because he's in he's the photographer who's always just leaving her to go on shoots yeah and in the mood for love we don't see either of the spouses directly I think there's only maybe like two or three scenes maybe four in total where they're even in the shot but they're so obscured you don't see the face I think you just see like maybe a portion of their their shoulder or their toe yeah. torso or something like that like they're even when they're there with the two leads of this film the spouses aren't even there and there's one scene where maggie chung is speaking to her husband and it's just it gets in i forget what they're talking about but it ends with him saying whatever and that was one yeah. of the questions i want to ask for you is whatever the most dismissive word you can say in a relationship that's a good question Whatever's up there for sure. Um, I feel like my therapist would say it is. Um, I know personally, just there have been situations where it's, you know, you know, things are not going well and that I think both parties know that things are going to end before too long and you're still getting in fights and you're just still, still sort of like denying the fact that you aren't good for each other and you're in a fight and you just mm -hmm. you don't really want to get invested with i know i have dropped whatever's a handful oh, of yeah, times I'm throughout sure my uh, my dating life where it's just like i'm in this fight i don't even give a shit anymore i just don't want to be yelling anymore whatever and just kind of yeah. like leave it at that yeah it's like whatever whatever you want to do i don't give a shit anymore it's fine I just, and I it, just I mean... think it's fascinating <laughs> that that one word has kind of like become so ubiquitous to mean that among i just thought it was fascinating for uh, a 1962 hong kong movie to drop the whatever situation i was like man that really is like a cross-cultural dismissive of of another person is for some reason i found that very fascinating yeah interesting. i mean i again i don't know enough i don't know any chinese so i don't i don't know how that kind of translated out or whatever but uh yeah it, it does it's interesting to think that like, um how how much stuff has changed in uh relationships across time and space between uh you know 1960s hong kong and now but uh if that is like a dismissive response that's pretty amazing in, in, in how that works yeah just so just listen racist we're all dismissive of our partners it doesn't matter what <laughs> ethnicity you are we're all yeah, it's, true. it's all terrible for everybody all the time um i was gonna say ah ping Tony Leung's coworker. Oh, his uh, his horny friend. His horny friend. Yes, I was confused. His first conversation with Tony Tony Leung, I thought he was saying that he was sleeping with somebody, and I was like, who would date this guy? Oh, well, then we find out later he has uh, he has a line of credit at a at a whorehouse. So I mean, yeah, I, I mean that's that different. Like, you know. that. <laughs> but I I didn't I I thought he was dating someone, and I was like, who would date this dude? Uh, not to yeah, be like he a, easily a... could have been. He easily could have been cast as the was it the the mole man in the Fantastic Four, and it would have been <laughs> it would have been believable. I'm I'm the thing. Yeah, and and so I don't know. I like this. Like, I'll bring a couple of things up now that I found on the Wikipedia page, and I'm sure that you saw as well. But one, uh, Wikipedia says that Wong was influenced by Vertigo when he was making this. And that Tony Leung's character is similar to Jimmy Stewart's character in that movie. Ooh, I hadn't thought about that. But I, coincidentally, I ordered a 4K of Vertigo a few weeks ago. Uh -huh. And now that you mention that, there is some similarities. There's 
aesthetically there are similar shots with lighting mm-hmm. uh especially with really heavy emphasis of green and red and yeah. story-wise in vertigo jimmy stewart falls in so jimmy stewart is a a private investigator after being mm-hmm. a former san francisco cop who leaves the force after having this weird bout of vertigo while chasing a criminal on a rooftop mm-hmm. he ends up being a becoming a pi he gets hired to fire to uh he gets hired to follow this woman who whose husband thinks she's having an affair so jimmy stewart's following i believe it's kim novak he's following her all through san francisco like golden gate bridge the art museum all this kind of stuff he ends up kind of like falling in love with her just like following her because he thinks she she thinks she's uh he thinks she's like following a ghost or something like she's just doing like all this kind of weird sad stuff and then he eventually gets yeah. to know her like i think he just he actually starts interacting with her and then he does fall in love with her and then she dies she is sort of mysterious i was trying to like tiptoe without giving too much of the plot away yeah because we didn't and after that one yeah and after she dies he meets another woman who oh, I, a key component is kim novak is blonde so he falls in love with this blonde woman and then as time goes on he finds this other woman who looks almost identical except she's a brunette and he starts dating her and he makes her dye her hair blonde to the same shade of blonde to the woman who died so she's almost identical and i'll stop describing the plot there and i mentioned that because a recurring thing throughout in the mood for love is after Tony Leong and Maggie Chung realize their spouses are cheating on them, they start trying to recreate how the two spouses met and started the affair. And then they like try to recreate how the spouses would act in, as far as like whether they want to take the step to in, 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 start in on a physical relationship between the two of them. Like, so I hadn't thought about that, but hearing that Wong Kar Wai took inspiration from Vertigo to while making this makes perfect sense in hindsight. Yeah, I like it. And I, I, I think it, I, you know, I kind of made a sound, but it sort of develops in the same way that their relationship is initially like very platonic. Um, and then as they spend time together, they do fall in love. And so it sounds very similar to the famous scene in Vertigo where Jimmy Stewart falls in love in the exploratorium which i'm pretty sure is is historically accurate <laughs> who who wouldn't fall in love in it with inside an exploratorium yeah exactly you know it's when she puts her hands on the electric ball and her hair like just shoots out <laughs> um that's when he knows that it's it's love yeah um no but... and you see this like slowly building and it becomes like very obvious that they're they're in love with each other in in the mood for love i, I think i'll go in this direction and say that TV tropes sort of like dances around what kind of love this was and it and they kind of sets on courtly love because they probably don't consummate the relationship. It there's one scene where Mrs. Chan she tells uh Mr. Chow that she doesn't want to go home and they like kind of spend the evening out together and we don't know what happens then. And so there's some ambiguity, but I think most of the interpretations of this movie are that they didn't like hook up on the other hand like she we see her at the end of the film with a a son 
And it appears to be, and I didn't do the math on this, I'm, I'm relying on TV Trope slash Wikipedia, that the son is the right age to be either from, um, you know, either have Mr. Chan as the father or Mr. Cho as the father. So again, that is also left ambiguous. I didn't think about it possibly being uh, Mr. Chow's son. But yeah, I, I really wanted to talk about that scene about where it's left ambiguous, whether they actually hooked up or not. Mm -hmm. Because... I, I was kind of getting to it in what I was saying about Vertigo, yeah. but I didn't fully get there. But like throughout the film, they have these scenes where they have where either Tony Leung or Maggie Chung, like they role play as the other spouse yeah. and they, they practice confronting the spouse. So like there's, I think two scenes where Maggie Chung is talking to Tony Leung. And at first you think she's speaking to mr chow directly yeah and it's always kind of these like relationship questions like do you have a mistress uh do you love me and you think it's like it's kind of like a progression of their relationship and then mr chow's like oh no your husband wouldn't openly confess you like you have to you know you have to do this or that when you confront him and so it creates this level of ambiguity through probably like the second half of the film you're not really sure what is and isn't happening because there's a couple scenes where like they're role playing as the spouse but then there's a couple scenes where like i couldn't tell whether it was actually happening or whether it was like the characters imagining what they wish they had they would have done like when you said where there's a scene where she said i i don't want to go home yet and they kind of go off in a cab together and she puts his, her head on his shoulder but that mm -hmm. comes right after him like proposing that they like go out and go on a date or something she's like no i i can't be seen i don't want so it's like always kind of hard to tell whether is this actually happening or is the character imagining what they wish they had done so it's it, there's such a lot of ambiguity at the end of it and it it sounds more confusing trying to describe it it works better i think watching it in real time where it's just kind of like it's this small dose of wish fulfillment, but you don't know if it's an actual fulfillment or just a, the wish of the wish, I guess. It's kind of creates this weird disorienting feeling. Yeah, it basically just sort of like times, there's a you know, two, three scenes where it kind of like time skips and events go in a different direction. And you wonder, I wondered like, is this that what really happened? Or, you know, which one is the real sort of set of events versus the the wish fulfillment or thought process or even just like it sort of stutters in time a little bit and it it does tend to happen at these like key moments when their relationship is developing and it does it does sound confusing and it is a little bit like you do have to pay attention to the film to like understand what's or to, to even get a sense of like what exactly is happening but like you know events sort of veer off in completely different direction it almost feels like you know, a what if situation. I, I read also, I, I didn't bring this in because I haven't watched it yet, but people who did everything everywhere all at once said that this film was an influence their movie. And so I wonder- oh, you, you if, haven't seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. I, I just, I oh, was waiting man. for the right time. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly correct. I, I didn't think about it yesterday while watching it, but while- when I did see everything everywhere, mm -hmm. one of the multiverse universes is a recreation of a Wong Kar Wai film. Mm. And 
there is a monologue that is so beautiful. I don't want to even ruin it. I don't even want to say too much since you don't know what I'm referring to, but it's just one of the most heartbreaking lines I've heard in, in any movie. So I'll, I'll put that out there for you as a little, a little taster to try and get you to finally watch it. I should know. And it's, it's just, I mean, I've been really excited to see the movie. It's just been like, Oh, like I want to like have things in a good state before watching it. If that makes sense. I think I might know what, lines you're referring to because I, I think my brother had them like stitched and like framed on his like, for his, when he and his partner moved in uh together um yeah so, that makes sense yeah uh so yeah and so i liked i well i didn't like i had no like strong opinion i thought it was interesting um on that like time starter effect where it went back and something happened i don't know if it was the reality or like the wish fulfillment part but the, the the one thing I didn't love about the movie was the the two kind of visual effects that they would do. Um, one is like slow-mo and one was like this FPS sort of, it, it, it seemed to cut down on the frames per second uh, of the movie to give it this like, like it was still happening in real time, but it gave it this like sort of sketchy or chonky sort of effect. <laughs> Again, like some key moments. And I felt that was like a little too artificial and it called too much attention to itself. Like, I think there's one scene where uh, we see like the first, maybe the first time it starts really raining heavily. And then Wong Kar Wai does the the effect on the rain kind of hitting the pavement. And I was like, you could have just showed mm-hmm. us the rain hitting the pavement. And I think that would have been a lot less sort of distracting, you know, and in, in going back to that discussion of the apartment where, you know, they didn't want to have visual effects sort of taking you out of the moment. And I felt like, those two especially like i really unless it's like really well done i don't like slow motion and i I felt like that that frames per second effect wasn't that great either it's a big wong kar wai trademark he does that in chunking express a lot like that's that's Mm -hmm. i want to say most of the film but those shots and the slow motions and the kind of the blurred elements right like distortions in time and the frame right like he does that a lot like that's just i think that's kind of like his uh trademark his signature in his movies to kind of be like you know it's me and you love it <laughs> well it was kurosawa had those wipes until george lucas took those wholesale and just put it into every star wars movie so uh i get it i just found it distracting and so but i mean wait against the rest of the movie like it's just like the minorest like gripe I could like possibly bring up because, you know, you said it and, and in terms of costume, in terms of color and like, especially the greens and reds, which I don't think, I mean, red, you see like pretty often in movies, but green, I, I don't feel like gets as much play in terms of, you know, character feelings or things like that. Like I'm sure there's a lot of, well, no, there's not a lot of green in Avatar, but you know, you said something in fucking, Return of the Jedi Ewok village, there's going to be a lot of green. But when you're like referring to like actual character feelings, like you don't see it as much, but there's, you know, a pivotal scene where Maggie Chiang's character is wearing that sort of green red dress that is shimmering in the light, the, the you know, the, the weirdo lighting out on the street. And it's, it's almost like I've colored this person to like, let you know what they're feeling, which I think is, you know, in some ways very subtle, in some ways not. And it's a very sort of beautiful way to show that feeling the internal sort of emotion set for her character well i, I do want to say there's a lot of green in, in incredible hulk films 
but I, well, I, I didn't sure. want to break, I didn't want to break your flow, but I did want to go back to the, like the kind of the trademark Wong Kar Y shots where like things are kind yeah. of blurry and distorted a bit. I, I just want to make sure that I, I get this final line from the movie. And I think thematically it, it makes sense to explain the justifications for those shots. Mm-hmm. So at the very end of the film, one of the saddest sad man related lines will probably encounter on this podcast but there's a little dialogue card at the very end and it said he remembers those vanished years as though looking through a dusty window pane the past mm-hmm. is something he could see but not touch and everything he sees is blurred and indistinct so the fact that like that last part the blurred and indistinct i almost feel like those shots are kind of like representational of memory mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. in that you know, it's it's nothing new, but there's always the like the the scientific. I don't even know if it's a theory or, or a fact at this point, but like every time you remember something, you're just kind of like remembering the memory of the memory rather than the actual event. So it's kind of like yeah. you're just kind of recreating it. And so I feel like that thematically, those shots are just sort of like I feel I, I'd have to go back and kind of pinpoint them, but I wonder if they're around like the kind of central pinpoint moments yeah like the scene where he so tony leong is a uh he works for a newspaper and he you know in in ready describe that that the two characters eventually start writing a uh a serial together but his actual day job is working for a newspaper and near the end of the movie he tells her i've been i've been reassigned to singapore and I know you're not going to leave your husband, so I'd rather go than stay here. And then he like, and then a few minutes later, he does ask her, like, will you go with me? But, you know, he lays mm-hmm. it on thick being like, I love you. You don't love me. Or like you if you do love me, I know you're not going to leave your husband and I can't stay here anymore. And so I, I do wonder now if those kind of trademark shots of his do kind of line up with those really pivotal moments in this in the film and now this is going to make me want to watch it again tomorrow to see if that, that theory's right or not yeah and my feeling was that it did like those kind of visual effects did happen at those pivotal sort of points in their relationship and those stutters definitely those those time stutters where they go back a little bit um i think those did as well and so i don't have it as a fact and if we were film studies majors I think there'd be a paper here somewhere but yeah I totally agree and I I'm not going to divulge the the one that I'm thinking about now but we all have those kind of moments where we look back and you know it's a secret we sort of keep to ourselves and I think you knew a lot of the one that that I'm thinking of right now and uh you sort of gloss over you're you're remembering a memory and and you're remembering I think for me the parts that brought me joy and I wish you know I had done things differently at that time and but it, it is, it, it does feel like, you know, older men sort of thinking about decisions they made in the past and, and realizing that they, you know, feeling the good parts of it and then really realizing the bad parts. And the, you know, the really heartbreaking thing about the movie is that eventually Mrs. Chan decides to go with him. She just gets to the hotel after he's left, correct? Like, yeah, um, yeah. they miss each other. Heartbreaking. And it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And that kind of going on like basically the last bit of the movie is them sort of missing each other throughout the years essentially Mm -hmm. um she calls him and he she doesn't speak on the phone 
um, she actually, he actually goes back to the apartments they had rented and she had moved into the apartment she'd lived in before or the part of the apartment. Well, yeah, in. they, they both go back to the building to yeah. visit their old landlords and hope that the other one will still be there. I think they're, they miss each other by two years, but they both pull the same shit. Like rather than directly trying to find each other, they try to do it in roundabout sneaky ways. And well, they, there's, there's, you know, I it, understand that sort of fear they of... had to they i think they they had to at the time like we kind of talked well, about well, earlier yeah like, I, I, I socially don't they couldn't I... just look up a male married person right no i well i don't know if they could directly ask or not ask but i also think that there's probably some fear just like directly taking off the bandage and seeing what was under there you know like yeah like if he knocked on the door and her husband and like not a fear of like the husband's gonna like slap him or anything or or you know but you know, a fear of like what has happened to her and has she moved on or or vice versa. But then, I mean, he comes to see his old landlord, and obviously with sort of the intention of seeing if she was still there or not. And mm -hmm. his old landlord says, "Oh, it's just a woman and her kid there, and it's obviously her and her child who we see in the next like scene." And it's just heartbreaking yeah. to see that they like again miss each other. And there's the slight sort of ambiguity of is that you know, uh, Chow's husband, or is that Chan's, uh, not Chow's son, or Chan's son, and, yeah. you know, I don't know. We don't see much of that, so it's hard to, like, put in a lot of, like, well, you know, too bad for him, because he also missed on, missed out on, on being a father in that respect, but, sure. uh, at least the relationship part, that, that felt very sad, um, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going through my notes now, and I did, I did have a note to myself where, at different times early on in the movie, both protagonists are referred or are, are told that they're too polite. And that definitely mm. is kind of like a recurring theme yeah. for them. Like kind of like one of the, probably the biggest frustration for the two of them is that they, they want to be polite. They want to do the right thing. They want to do the socially required acceptable thing. Yeah. And that's, what's so frustrating about it. Cause it's like, Oh, just, run away to a different country no one will know who you are and like it, it, that's what's so frustrating about yeah. it almost happening because it yeah. they've had such a clear cut solution to avoid that that the social taboo yeah and they almost get there but they don't and it's just yeah. ugh, so so disappointing but then, yeah it's I mean, just like yeah. they it's just too it's just like the perils of being nice is kind of like one of the themes of this movie because like their spouses are off traveling in the philippines and japan and they're taking like you know they they are living as a couple even though they're still married to these two but the the two having the affair are living their lives and doing whatever they want and presumably having a good time yeah and our our protagonists are suffering and it's like to what end yeah and it's just so disappointing well, so I'm gonna, I, I tried to dance around it a little bit, but I'll say that we're, you know, I think the next one we're watching is Seven Samurai. And when I listened to the commentary track for Seven Samurai, I'm sure this is something we'll talk about more in depth uh, then uh, or next week or next time or whatever. But they showed Seven Samurai to like, you know, in like 2000 or like the, 90, uh, the 1990s or whatever, they showed Seven Samurai to basically village people in India and they totally got it. Like they totally understood everything that was going on because their lives were very similar to what they were seeing in the movie. And I think of, when I think about In the Mood for Love, I think about how much, 
how similar this is to like Indian Desi South Asian stories of like two people falling in love, but the social obligations like and this is, you know, when I make it that uh, generic, it's, you know, it's a story that is as old as time in every culture, but seems very relevant to, you know, the culture that I grew up in where these social obligations and I have, you know, sort of witnessed firsthand these social obligations keep people apart when they would likely be better off kind of, you know, together or mm -hmm. doing something that makes them happy versus, you know, kind of the, the, the rigid sort of social norms they're stuck in. I think yeah. you're right that there's there's a lot of cross-cultural aspects to this story. Like one of the things I thought about a lot was the work of Graham Greene, mm -hmm. who is one of my favorite authors, but at the same time wrote one of the most hated books I've ever read. I, li I like him for like The Third Man and The Power and the Glory, which like the first one's a, a post-World War II noir story. Uh, Power, and the Power and the Glory is about a, like a priest on the run in revolutionary Mexico. And then his most famous work, which is the book I fucking hated, is The Heart of the Matter. And mm. it's, I think it's British colonialists in Africa. I forget where in, in Africa, but it's a very similar premise to this where it's like a couple falls in love. The woman's husband is off doing his own thing. And they're both very strict Catholics. And so they're like, oh, we can't do it. We can't, you know, yeah. tarnish our vows of, 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 of marriage and all this. And eventually, I'm trying to remember, it's been a couple of years since I read it. And I also tried to purge it from my brain because I just got so frustrated with it. But in like an anger frustration rather than like a heartbroken frustration like this movie. But I think the woman goes back to her husband in the male lead of the book just kills himself like that's that was his solution to it all he just is like all right i'm gonna kill myself Bye. and like that's how the book ends it's all really sudden and abrupt yeah. and it's just like you dummy like you had so many options that you could have you could have like gone with her or like before she got to this point you yeah. could just like left the country like tony leung does and just start over again find someone new and it, it just felt like sort of a cop-out story where it's just like oh i love this woman she left okay i'm gonna kill myself goodbye and and damnation send myself to damnation for all time because I'm a very Catholic author. And this is oh, like, oh, I didn't but, even thought about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's yeah. uh yeah, but it, that was the thought that came to me rewatching this yesterday. Is as I I wonder how much Graham Greene. Hopefully he's not. <laughs> hopefully he didn't seep into Wong Kar Wai's brain. But since <laughs> well, you I, mentioned like the cr the cross cultural aspect of it, I thought yeah, I'd yeah. just throw that out there. Well, yeah, when you get to the point of like man versus society or man versus like social obligations, and it's a pretty like wide ranging sort of story. But I do think like in Western, like you couldn't tell that story in modern day, like most Western culture right now. Maybe maybe with that like that Catholic, and maybe I haven't thought about it like deeply enough because yeah, like I I hadn't even really considered like. You know, when I think about Catholicism, I think about American Catholicism and not sort of, you know, where it may be stricter. Like, you know, maybe like in present day, like in Africa, where uh, they seem to take it a little more like seriously than American Catholics do right now. I will I will throw in a note here that I do feel like I because I've had nowhere, no other place to vent about this. But Dan Simmons read, uh, wrote Hyperion and then I think the second the fall of Hyperion. And Hyperion was one of the most, uh, and it's basically like a science fiction take on the Canterbury Tales. And mm -hmm. it was one of the most 
beautiful and like humanist books I'd ever read. And I really loved it. And Fall of Hyperion was like pretty close to that. Not quite at the same level, but like it was just gorgeous. And I picked up his book, Ilium. And basically the the background plot of the book is that Arabs in the Middle East had like created a virus that was meant to kill all Jews. And then it backfired and killed almost everybody else or something. And, I, you know, the book was like post 9-11 and it just felt like, one, this is stupid. And two, uh, <laughs> it really broke a lot of people's brains. Similarly, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote The Years of Rice and Salt. And I cried during that book. Uh, and the premise of the book is that the bubonic plague was worse in Europe than it actually had been in history. And so basically the two leading or the two major societies in history since that time were the Arabs and the, um, well, the Muslim sort of like kind of Arab Persians, whoever, and then the Chinese. And I cried because I was like, no one has told stories about us as like people that are not like oppressed by the Europeans. And then you can see like he wrote it before and after 9-11. You can see where it like falls off the rails after 9-11. And it's just mm. like, oh man, people's brains are just broken. Anyway, I just wanted to vent about, you know, authors whose books I love, like then going on and doing garbage. Well, you're exactly yeah. right that people's brains are broken because when you initially started describing this, I thought you were talking about Bill Simmons. And I was like, when did he ever write a book? <laughs> I mean, there's the Dilbert guy, too, who's now, like, completely lost his mind. Yeah, that he's not even worth discussing. Yeah, um, not even his tower that looks like the head of Dilbert. I didn't know that was a thing, and I, I'm going to resist the urge to look it up. Uh, I'm sorry I put that into your brain. Um, there was a <laughs> note, I think, from TV Tropes that not only, like, you know, they, they you mentioned how polite they are and how they kind of conform to this like social ideal when the people around them are not doing that. Um, you can see it even in their clothes, like the entire movie, they are dressed to the nines. They look fantastic in every scene. Um, I mm -hmm. think the what like maybe there's one or two minor scenes where Tony Leung is still in dress pants, but wearing like a, um, uh, uh, you know, a sleeveless or yeah, sleeveless undershirt but they look amazing. And it's, you know, another reflection of how tied they are to these social norms. And I think one of the characters even says like, she's dressed up like about Maggie Chung character. She's dressed up like that to go get noodles from downstairs, essentially. Um, oh, the noodles. We got to talk about the noodles. Tell me about the noodles. Cause I didn't have a lot other than I've turned to my partner and said, I'm in the mood for Chinese food. I I had I, very. I said the exact same thing. I had the yes. exact same reaction. <laughs> no, I, I. So there's just a recurring shot throughout the movie where one of them will be walking to this noodle stand that's mm -hmm. kind of like down this alleyway outside their apartment. It happens a handful of times where one will be walking to the noodle place while the other one's walking away from it. Yeah. And there's sort of some emphasis on the loneliness of eating alone. Yeah. Like they kind of factor in on that a, a bunch. And really, like you said, it just made me want Chinese food really badly. But I first thought, so that had two questions that I wanted to ask you about that. First, an easy one. Are noodles an S tier comfort food? Oh, absolutely. 100%. They're good. <laughs> um, and then like, they're a good food for when you're in the cold. 
and then you know again i lived in japan for a long time and so a lot of that was like comfort food and you know i definitely even uh working as a teacher uh in japan like i would buy like good instant ramen because those were nice comfort foods even if it wasn't like the the classiest dish in the world oh sure yeah but even outside ramen like chicken noodle soup and yeah macaroni cheese and pasta and all the ramen udon and all the different variations yeah there's no doubt that noodles are one of the best foods in the world yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I was gonna say, just like on 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 behalf of China and Marco Polo, you Polo, you're welcome. The rest of the world. <laughs> All right. And so, and the more substantial question that stemmed from this: mm. Are there any specific foods you closely associate with the relationship? I mean, there's stuff that my partner now makes that I closely that I don't make or don't go out of my way to like find on my own that I I tie to the relationship. Like she makes crab cakes and stuff, and you know I really don't go out of my way to like eat crab cakes. I also my my one good recipe I think still now is um, Thomas Heller's roast chicken recipe, and so I made that a few times, especially several times, especially at the beginning of the relationship, and so I also. Tie that to the relationship, and then I taught her how to make turkey meatballs that I like, and so I think stuff that we make together, or have made together, or we brought to the relationship, are ones that I sort of identify with this relationship. Outside of that, it's hard to remember because I try to like salt the earth and and burn the bridge after every relationship. Uh, so I don't remember like food wise if there's like a lot that I will say. You kind of mentioning your comfort food question. I'd gotten sick in Japan, and the person I was dating there like brought me oden, which is you know kind of like a stew with like a lot of different kind of Japanese stuff in it.、Um, and so that was the first time I had it, and then she gave it to me and left and called me and like really worried because she wasn't sure if there was actually pork in it or not. And I don't really eat pork, and so she was like, "Oh my god, I I don't remember if there was pork in it or not or whatever." So I, I mean, I identify that with that relationship, but other than that, I can't really think of any. How about you? I had a hard time answering this myself because, for whatever unfortunate reason, I tend to have. I think my three longest relationships,、uh, long being anything, I'm considering anything over like two or three months, anything longer than that. My longest relationships have pretty much all been with vegetarians, and that's been very、oh, <laughs> frustrating. Yeah, my current partner is.、Uh, she'll eat chicken if I make it, but that's kind of the extent of her meat eating. But、um, I was trying to think. Speaking about your 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 ex in Japan bringing you the food, that made me think of probably one of the moments where I. So before my current partner and I got together, I I was considering leaving Denver. I was kind of like toying with the idea of moving to either Seattle. Enough of this mile high shit. Yeah, kind of. It, it was kind of like running its course. I was like, yeah, I don't know. But I said I'd become friends with her, and I also kind of realized, oh, there's something here between us. But I wasn't sure if it was like enough to merit staying.、Mm -hmm. But I went on a kind of a recon trip of the Northwest, and while I was there, I was kind of like,、uh, there's really no reason for me to move here alone. Just kind of like start from zero all over again. That's、mm -hmm. why do that to myself. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll stay in Denver to see how things go. And when I came back, she. Bought me a four pack of cheer wine, and I was like, "Okay, I think <laughs> this is this is now a relationship worth pursuing." And so、uh, here、It's、we worth are. Worth sticking around for. 
Yeah. Oh boy, it's almost. Uh, I almost don't oh know how God. you get share wine in Denver. Seven years later. Uh, world market. Okay. You can <laughs> like buy. The... It's like the only. It's the only nationwide retailer of cheer wine. Interesting. That's that's impressive. That is. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like that is that is. Uh, that was a move. That was a that was a that was a real boss move. Yeah, and I actually it reminds me of a story one of our our mutual college friends told me about her. I th- I think it's kind of like the moment she fell in love with her now husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't I won't name names or give details because it's been a while since she told me, but it it definitely seems like providing food for someone is kind of an instant way into their heart because there actually was a scene in the movie where he got sick because he got stuck in the rain. I can't remember if it was the scene where he gave his umbrella to her or not. And then he got stuck in the rain, but he got sick from being in the rain and he wanted, what was it? Uh, was it sesame sauce? I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's what it was. And the, uh, the horny friend that we mentioned earlier, he went over <laughs> to check on him. And as mm-hmm. he left the apartment, Maggie Chung was like, Oh, what are you doing over here? And he's like, Oh, he's sick. He wants me to go get him sesame sauce. And then almost immediately after that scene ends, she's in a kitchen and her landlord's like, oh, why are you making such a big batch of sesame sauce? She's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to have save some for later. And so it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of like one of those key key moments. It's like, oh, you love him. You love yeah. him. You're making him the stuff for while he feels sick. Yeah. No, and I think, yeah, like Jerry Seinfeld has this bit. And forgive me for bringing up Jerry Seinfeld, but... You know, he's this, he has this like opening bit on one of the episodes of Seinfeld where he's like, the real deal with marriage is I, you, whatever that richer or poorer stuff, I can forget it or leave it or, you know, take it or leave it. But uh, that sicker or in health part, that's where I need the partner. That's when I want someone mm-hmm. there for me. Um, and yeah, like I feel like a lot of relationship is like, are you there for me when I'm sick? And like, are you are you going to be someone uh, there for me when, you know, if I potentially fall in the shower or whatever, but you know, that kind of nursing you back to health is, is something that, uh, I think it's a, you know, very ingrained in us as, as people. There is some good and some bad to that because I've talked about a couple of times when I had my skin cancer surgery a couple of years ago. So it ended up being about a, like about a six inch scar like so i had like mm-hmm. a six inch long area where it was, uh, they first applied liquid sutures and i had an allergic reaction and that resulted in me getting an infection in the area so i had to go back in about i think three days after surgery and they had to cut an inch hole back into into me just so like pus could be removed and mm-hmm. so for i think I, forget, I think it was about the next month every day my partner had to remove antibiotic strips from this like penny sized hole in my side and then like shove in new antibacterial strips into me. And kind of, <laughs> I had photos of it. It looked fucking gross and she did it and she hated it. And honestly, I hated that she was doing it, but uh, you know, she was a trooper and she, she did it. So, you know, I guess there is a lot to Jerry Seinfeld's claim that the, sickness and health component that's a that's a big part of it yeah i'm not going to go into details but i i definitely had kidney stones and have been uh you know taken care of it and i was you know uh very uh appreciated i oh, uh, should have just gone on thunder mountain <laughs> uh 
Uh, sadly, that was after before. No, that was the kid you said was before Thunder Mountain. Thunder Mountain. Bleh. Well, if anyone out there has kidney stones, it's been scientifically proven that riding Thunder Mountain, I forget if it's at Disneyland or Disney World, but riding Thunder Mountain several times can help loosen the kidney stones and help you pass them. Take our advice. Do the ride. We're not doctors. We're not, we're not doctors. We're, ba we're barely lawyers. <laughs> what else? Did I have any other notes on this? I don't think I did. Uh, well, no, I did have one unfortunate note. So this is from Wikipedia, but in 2009, Wong signed a petition in support of director Roman Polanski following his arrest in relation to his 1977 oh, no. sexual abuse charges. After being detained while traveling to a film festival, which the petition argued would undermine the tradition of film festivals as a place for works to be shown, quote, freely and safely, and that arresting filmmakers traveling to neutral countries could open the door for actions for uh, which no one can know the effects, which is... Oh, God forbid someone, an underage girl, live freely and safely. We have to protect the, the sexual assaulting directors and let them travel freely and safely. I mean, I get that, like... This would be completely different if it was like a filmmaker from Iran and then they were going through Iran and then like, you know, were arrested for making some, something subversive, like my feelings would be different. But Roman Polanski uh, sexually abusing a child, uh, you know, that's fine. You can yeah. arrest him in any country you want. I, the worse, the better, frankly. Agreed. Well, I, I still have a, I'm trying to see which notes are worth diving into right now because i still have a decent amount uh i made a note that i i thought there was like a recurring motif of of people standing with hands on doorways and i felt oh, like that's yes. kind of a, a symbolic image where it's just kind of like you're standing at the precipice and you just don't take that step through i feel like but i don't know if that's really worth dwelling on well, beyond that that reminds me of one one thing uh and i'm going to try to say this respectfully as possible but there's a lot of shots of backsides in the movie. And I, I mean like people's literal backs, but also uh Maggie Chung's uh backside and her and her and her butt um in the film. And I I wasn't completely sure like uh you know what the point I, I didn't see what the point was exactly except you know, you have a, a, a beautiful woman here and maybe it's like well, Lost in Translation where they did, you know, where uh, that initial scene with uh, Scarlett Johansson was was there because, you know, Sofia Coppola was just like, I wanted like a sexy scene at the beginning of the movie. But well, that actually transitions into what my next note was going to be, where I, there's a ton of shots. I feel like very voyeuristic, like you're watching someone else like kind of spying on them because like, yeah. there will be it looked like you're like kind of looking around a corner or yeah like spying through a window or like a lot of kind of shots where there is some sort of obstruction. It's not just a clear on viewing of what's happening. It's like, it definitely has this kind of voyeuristic feeling throughout, which I wanted to kind of mention, but you, you're exactly right. There's kind of like a lot of scenes where it's just kind of like, Ooh, I'm looking, but they don't know I am. And I'm kind of looking where I shouldn't be looking. So it's kind of, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that, there's a lot of intimate scenes between these people. And I think uh, the way we like use English in like a normal sense, like that's completely correct. But there are these scenes where there's no like sexuality per se in them, but they are like super intimate scenes and they are very like open, vulnerable scenes. And it does feel like we are kind of voyeuristically watching 
like very I can't think of a better word than intimate scenes between these two people. Yeah. Uh, even though it's well, that, not that like... actually reminds me, I, I had two alternate titles for this movie. The first one I sort of alluded to earlier, uh, one alternate title could be Hong Kong cucks. <laughs> and then, then the second alternate title is edging the movie. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I know if I can find the quote, this might take a second. Well, let me just say it in the way that I would say it. Um, and I'll, I'll recall our discussion about the apartment, but you really just want them to bone. So badly. Yes. Well, that, what a thing. I mean, especially got so much more frustrating once they started working on the martial arts serials together, mm-hmm. because that's such like a unique thing where it's like, you know, they, it's very, it's hinted at very early on. And then they, in essence, become writing partners. And I think that's just yeah. so cool. Like the fact, like, at that time in that part of the world, like to find someone of the opposite sex who's going to be into that stuff and like actively help create it with someone like I thought it was so neat. And it just reminded me of one of the more profound relationship statements any anyone's ever said to me. I won't mention his name, but it was one of my drinking buddies back in Atlanta before I, I moved away. It was one of my friends I, I met one of the few uh, lawyer friends I met during my Atlanta legal career, but we were drinking one night and we were both single at the time. And he, he told me one time, he's just, it was kind of, he said it like almost dejectedly, but I feel like there was a lot of like pathos to it where he, he said, I just want someone to watch Netflix with. Yeah. And, you know, and that sounds very simple on the surface, but you know, we talked about it more. Cause like, yeah, I think we've, all been relationships where like you watch a movie with a person, but I know I have an ex where we were just on different planes as far as interests go. Like, well, yeah, we watched movies, would go to movies once in a while, but like we went to Seattle together and we went to that pop culture museum that's at the base of the uh, space needle. Mm-hmm. And they had an entire horror and sci-fi section. And I was just like, this is great. And like, I, I had her take a photo with a xenomorph and she's like, why am I taking a photo with this? It's like, just do it. But yeah. like, she was obviously miserable. And, and, and I contrast that with where I am now, this, oh God, this, uh, set, you know, almost seven year long relationship at this point. And like, we both love horror movies and like, you know, our, our tastes aren't perfectly parallel, but they align more often than not. And I think about my friends line a lot where like, I think so much of a relationship is just kind of like filling in the, the kind of the, you know, not to say boring time, but just like the average hours of a day Mm -hmm. and having someone that you can watch Netflix with and watch, want to watch the same stuff most of the time or enjoy the same things. Like that's a huge aspect of it. So like, that's what makes this relationship. For sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's what makes this relationship and the movie. So even more frustrating because like they actually are c- good for each other and compatible. It's not like, Oh, our two spouses are cheating on us. You know, let's get together to despite them. It's just like, Oh no. Like even if you were to remove that component of their histories and just have them as two individuals, they still would have been, ideal partners for one another and that's why it's so disappointing that they don't end up together when you know they stay in these relationships where the person obviously doesn't want to be with them or does you know doesn't want to be with them primarily and then they just have to forego happiness for no it's all for like metaphysical reasons i guess 
Yeah, or a reasons that, you know, even for us looking back, don't necessarily completely make sense, honestly. Yeah. I mean, they culturally they do, but that doesn't mean it was right. Right, exactly. Like we can we can process yeah. the the reasoning. We just can't like we don't necessarily agree with it, I guess is the uh the idea. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, now I'm turning into a sad man. <laughs> Anything else from your notes that you want to bring up here? Man, I still got I'm trying to like wean out the parts that aren't really worth talking about. Um there's the the classical music piece that keeps the leitmotif through that. I just want mm -hmm. to say that this this show that I know what the word leitmotif means. Um Hmm. Tony Leung keeps saying, I'll leave you in peace a lot. That's that's kind of a recurring phrase of his. I guess they both say it a few times. Yeah, and I wonder if uh, it's like, uh, again, some like translation thing. Uh, or like, and, or, you know, and or it's supposed, you know, kind of their own politeness or whatever. Like, I again, yeah. I wish I knew more about Chinese to like understand it better. But yeah, uh, see, I have I had the quote, you notice things if you pay attention, which yeah, yeah I wrote no that down shit, too. I guess. <laughs> but I, I guess I that is one thing I want wanted to touch on real quick is like how they figure out that their spouses are together. Yeah, it, the two the two of them go to have a meal together because both their spouses are out of town, and Mister Chow goes to Mrs. Chin's like, "Hey, uh, I like your handbag. Where did you get it?" Yeah. I'd like to buy one for my wife. And she says, oh, my husband bought it abroad. And he's like, oh, oh, oh did okay. he? And then she's like, hey, I like your tie. Where where did you get get your tie? And he says, mm -hmm. my wife got it for me while she was abroad. And then she reveals my husband has the same tie. And he got, he reveals, yeah, my wife has the same handbag. Yeah. And so that's how they figure out. I thought that was a very clever way of revealing what's happening. It's apparent, but I thought that was such a a very clever way for the characters within the actual story to, to figure it out. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, I think they already kind of came into that conversation, conversation knowing or suspecting that was the case. Most um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I like how they pieced it together. I did like, you know, sort of the dramatic irony of, of seeing them sort of piece it together by the point that we had sort of seen like that was the case as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see. Well, you mentioned it earlier. The the sequel to this is 2046. And... 2049? I mean, I guess it's sort of... No, it's 2046. Or six. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the sequel, 2046, is... It's a direct sequel to this, where Tony oh, Young plays the same character. Harder? Possibly. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, but it's a direct sequel to this, where Tony Young plays the same character, but now he's like this... A womanizer mm -hmm. and he's a he's a successful writer and then you find out like it's he's writing a sci-fi story set in the year 2046 and it's just like but it ends up being a story about the failed love relationship that happens within in the mood for love so it's kind of mm. like this it, it it's also a very it's an entirely unique film like I think I may have saw that before I saw this. Mm -hmm. So it stands on its own. But like once you know the connection between the two, it's just sort of like uh, Tony Leung staring at you through a window very sadly. And you're just your your heart breaks into breaks a million well, yeah, pieces. Yeah. Well, and so I, I have a note. And so um, the number comes up even in this movie. And 2046 is the year that 
theoretically, Hong Kong is supposed to revert back to China completely with the two systems oh. rule. Um, and so there's this idea and jokes on uh, jokes on uh, Wong Kar Wai for this, but it almost goes to this idea that like things like relationships and even love and the two systems rule in uh, Hong Kong versus China all have uh, expiration dates. They all end. They all sort of die eventually. And so that that seems to be why this seems to, you know is a, a reoccurring number for him in these in this trilogy of movies. And I say jokes on him because it's already happened. Too late, buddy. Um, yeah. No, I, I thought about that several times while watching this because, I, like I mentioned earlier, I've been a, a fan of Hong Kong films for mm -hmm. a couple of years now. And it, it is a city I would like to visit, but I do feel a little conflicted about ever going now while it's under Chinese control just based on how they've treated the citizens there. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't want to go into that. I'm trying to scale back the the number of political rants I go on on this show. Well, I mean, I don't think yeah. either of us is like super equipped to discuss the political situation in Hong Kong, but it no. does seem like, and I, I actually watched that handover. Um, I was like, I can't remember, like it must've been like early or mid teens. And I just saw it on TV because I was staying up late and I was like, this is something. <laughs> and it seems mm -hmm. really... Uh, the situation has gotten very poor there, and uh, it, it makes me feel bad because it did seem like Hong Kong was like a very interesting and dynamic place. And sadly, you know, I also have not been, the closest I've been is there's an arcade in Yokohama, I think, uh, Yokohama, or there used to be. Um, there was, uh, the interior was completely like a, like a sort of sci-fi Hong Kong sort of thing, and it closed sadly a few years ago, but... That was the closest I've been, but I was like, uh, this would be a very cool, uh, this is a very cool introduction to Hong Kong, and I, I wish I, I could go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm trying to wrap it up. So uh, Mr. Chow does end up moving to Singapore, and so it cuts to Singapore 1963, and there is a scene where she, I think you mentioned earlier, where she calls him and then doesn't mm -hmm. say anything. And then he comes back to his apartment and he says something's missing and we don't know what he doesn't say what it is, but he finds a cigarette with lipstick yeah. on in the ashtray it would kind of imply that she had been there. So that's another heartbreak. And then right after that, he's at a meal with his, with his horny friend who also works at the same newspaper. And, you know, he's still, it's been a couple of years, but you can still tell that it's eating him up inside. Yeah. And he talks about this, uh, how in in ancient times there was this belief where people would go and find, they would carve a hole into a tree, whisper into the tree whatever their secret was, and then cover the hole with mud to kind of like seal the secret inside there. And then cut to uh, oh you've already mentioned it. The, the, it goes to, then it jumps to Hong Kong 1966, and we mentioned mm -hmm. that where like they each independently come back to their own apartments trying to either find information or the actual other somehow by going back and either do. And then there's the, the little, uh, you know, text card that says that era has passed. Um, yeah. Let me see if I have that. Let me see if I have that quote here handy. That era has passed. Nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. So it's kind of like, well, that's kind of just like a very romantic way of saying, fuck you, you blew it. <laughs> yes. And then the final sequence of the movie 
it takes place in Cambodia in 1969. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like out of nowhere news footage of Charles de Gaulle visiting Cambodia. And, but I watched a, a short little uh, supplement on the criterion disc where Wong Kar Wai talked about it. And he said, this was just sort of like a pretense to explain how, uh, Tony Leung ends up at Angkor Wat. Mm-hmm. So is he's just like, yeah, I need an excuse, a news excuse for why this, why he would be there. So it's like, oh, it's a newsworthy event, De Gaulle being there. So it's like mm-hmm. that was an excuse for us to get him there. Yeah. And so the movie ends with, with Tony Leung at the Angkor Wat uh, temples, and he finds this wall that has holes in it. And in our second time in this podcast, our movie ends with a character whispering a secret that we don't hear. And so it ends with he whispers a secret into this whole movie ends. And then that quote I had earlier about the pa- looking through the past like a dusted window pane. It's just kind of like, well, goodbye, soul. It was nice having yeah. you for a while. <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. There it goes. Yeah. And so that, I mean, I, you know, a boring question would be, well, what do you think he whispered? And we, that's kind of like what we talked about in the loss in translation. So I'm not going to ask you that. Yeah. I am going to ask you this, though. What tourist attraction would you whisper a secret into? <laughs> Good question. Um, what tourist? <laughs> uh, I feel like I would do like some sort of American roadside attraction. That would be like the best, the best event uh, or the best place to um whisper something i don't know maybe in san francisco too maybe the golden gate bridge it doesn't seem like it's giving up a lot of secrets itself it takes it into the into the pacific with it yeah which as we know i i I love as as a place for my own dead body and my secrets (laughs) yeah your dead body ends up in the pacific mine ends up in space that's (laughs) that's our destiny uh no i had a hard time coming up with an answer for this as well i just now I had the thought, oh, I guess it'd be kind of cathartic if you could yell a secret into the Grand Canyon or something like that. And Much have it like, like uh, reverber- Michael Scott in, in in that one episode of. Yeah, I just go to the Grand Canyon and yell, I have hemorrhoids and hear it echo until I don't hear it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on a more personal level. The thing that came to mind for me, and this is so fucking stupid. Uh, I was thinking like, oh, I could whisper a secret into one of the animatronics inside Spaceship Earth at Epcot. So I, the big golf ball looking thing. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. I think I think personally that may be the most uh, most gratifying landmark or tourist attraction to whisper a secret into that I didn't want anyone to know and try and like achieve some sort of emotional catharsis i like it i i think it's yeah i think that's a good good pick well maybe i guess we should stop there and i'll transition to say if any listeners have an idea of where they would like to whisper a secret we have an instagram account now yes it's really annoying i don't think i i think i forgot to tell you oh i told you it got suspended once because it thought we were a bot which I still don't know exactly why, but then it also locked me out of the account because I lo- it said I logged in from a weird location, but I've only ever logged in from one laptop and from my phone. And so after like 10 logins from my phone, it's like, oh, we don't know this location. So 
I don't know how long I'm actually going to maintain it. It seems like it may be more trouble than it's worth, but I actually would like to interact with people on there if they would like to. So uh, if you're listening to this and you're not following us yet, uh, please do and comment when I leave those weird little questions trying to increase engagement because I think that's how the algorithm works. But uh, it's there. I believe it's Cheer Up Buddy Pod, same as our Gmail account. So if you want to follow us, I'll be active on there to uh, a very small degree yeah and and shoot us a send us your message right we promise not to send it to anyone else yeah you know engage with us engage with us that's what we want we don't want to be we don't want to be lonely people like tony leung and maggie chung we want to engage we will uh we will have intercourse with you if you write martial arts serials with us unlike yeah, these characters of course uh asterix uh, intercourse is not guaranteed thank god we're le- lawyers that have these legal yeah. disclaimers it's on a case-by-case basis let's yeah <laughs> anyway yeah, it's yeah it's yeah yeah i got nothing so <laughs> i'll cut that <laughs> Uh, and, uh, our movie for next time is Seven Samurai. Oh, oh, actually, oh, wait, 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 all right, so I guess I always almost forget this, uh, but I guess before we sign off for good, what did we learn from this sad man? Oh, yeah. Uh, love is complicated, and even with the best of intentions and the right person, it's often hard to make that happen. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you got to go for the brass ring, you know? Yeah, and I, I think there is a. I think that's the very first title card in the movie. It's about like she leaned in, but he didn't make a move. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think the message here is like make a move anytime you think someone's interested. That's definitely not the way the world works anymore. But I feel like if you get to the point like these two characters do, where they are together yeah, so long weirdo, and for have, sure. yeah, yeah, but like these two characters have an obvious chemistry and they've spent enough time together where they know that there is something there. Just go for it. You know, it, it may not work out, but at the same time it might. So you always kind of have to keep that in mind. Love it. Our movie for next week is seven samurai. Cause I was surprised when Tom said he had not seen it uh, before. And so I think there's a lot of discussion likely about Akiru and about uh, in the mood for love. So, uh, and there'll be plenty to discuss um yeah we'll see and, you I, then. and we promise we promise this is the last foreign film for a while it's we've been yeah very, we'll do some more uh, american movies english we, english language movies we, soon we might we might be doing barbenheimer we're just putting it out there yes we're gonna ride the coattails um of both films and we're gonna feel the kin we're gonna feel the kinergy before too long yes i love it all right and with that we say It's time to be in the mood to turn this shit off. Yes. Bye. That was so clunky. Bye. (laughs) 